0: How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs. G20 Ventures, people first. Welcome to How Hard Can It Be, up close and personal with the real people behind Boston's venture capital, Big Time. Uh, this is Mike Triano your host. I am Mike Trapp on Twitter. You can find me at MikeTrap.com on Medium. Um, had a chance today to spend some time with Matt Walsh. Uh, if you've been to uh, any of the local Bitcoin blockchain meetups in town, you've probably sat in on at least uh, one panel that, uh, that featured Matt Walsh, uh, the Fidelity guy. Uh, As I uh, first encountered him, Uh, Matt is remarkable not only because he came from Fidelity, but because uh, he has a real um, depth of understanding of the market and I think uh, uh, an ability to see past some of the hype and craziness in the blockchain space to identify real sources of value. Uh, obviously, the perch of Fidelity gave him some unique perspective on the state of the market, and he recently left there to start a new venture fund investing in uh, in various blockchain plays and uh, crypto assets. Uh, that company's called Castle Island Ventures, and I had a chance to sit down with Matt today, get a sense of where he's come from and where he's headed in the future with this new venture fund. So uh, without further ado, here's my conversation with Matt Walsh of Castle Island Ventures. Did you, uh, we had quite a rainstorm uh, about an hour I ago. I got caught
1: you? in it. Yeah, I got caught in the down downpour. Yeah, There's this is uh, sp-
0: spring comes late to Boston. It does. Uh, usually, it's like 15 minutes in July. Yeah. Um, I appreciate you coming in. So we were talking a little bit when we first sat down. Two of my best friends from college went to uh, BC High, and you uh, you grew up locally and, and went there as well. Is that right?
1: I did. Yeah, I grew up in Milton. Went to BC High, class of 2003 at BC High. Yeah. Um, my father went there too, so we. Have a- quite a tradition in the family
0: you got uh, brothers and sisters i have
1: a younger brother who also went to bc high and a younger sister who did not go to bc high.
0: Yeah. now were you were you walshy and did you have friends named fitzy and sully i was walshy we had a
1: fitzy a sully a mahoney a Clancy. yeah yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> not a lot of italian kids that, yeah uh, yeah that's, 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 a, that's the way it goes um all right and uh uh where'd you go to school after that
1: um, so from BC High, I went to Babson. So I was a, a finance major at Babson College. Stayed local.
0: Have a good experience there. I
1: had a great experience there. I was um, I was a big runner in high school and subsequently in college. So was looking for a school that I could actually run at, and so ended up being the um, captain of the cross country and track team, uh, Babson, for my junior and senior years. Had an awesome experience. Met some great people. People that I stayed in touch with um over the years now were you so you ran distance i was a distance runner yeah so i was a 8k runner for cross country and then the 10k in the spring so 25 laps around the big track wow um yeah it was grueling
0: that's tough going yeah i threw the I was hammer about 30 pounds ago um, yeah i so. threw the hammer in um <laughs> in high school and in college and uh i um i, I have great respect for the distance guys it takes a lot of mental discipline
1: it does yeah it was uh but I loved it, and I still love being able to go out for a run and just you know, relax after a long day just going out there and catching my thoughts. Good for you. And did you work before Duke? I did, yeah. So out of undergrad, I was a management consultant for a company called Arthur D. Little yeah. down in New York. So I was in their private equity practice doing a lot of middle market transaction diligence. And then uh, the model was we would do the diligence on the private equity transaction, then we would go into the portfolio company after the PE firm bought it. Um, and do a lot of turnaround work, a lot of strategy work. So I was doing that for a couple of years, and then uh, Lehman Brothers happened, financial crisis happened. Around that time, I moved over to a company called Clear Channel. They would just been acquired a year or two earlier by uh, Bain and TH Lee. Uh, So so it's a big radio station company. And so I was part of the uh, strategy group there doing a lot of the operational restructuring uh, that goes with with managing a radio station company in the downturn.
0: Hmm. That's a big shift. Were you, at AD at, uh, Little, were you working on media clients or like how, how did? The- N-
1: not necessarily media clients. It was more of a, um, you know, the, the job in 2007 was primarily working on a lot of growth initiatives, strategy work for the portfolio companies. And As we went into the financial crisis, we were ourselves shrinking, so we were doing a layoff about every two weeks, and then subsequently, we were selling a lot more restructuring work than we were um, you know, top-line growth type of strategies. And so the jump off to Clear Channel was kind of a, a logical progression of a strategy role that is heavily focused on cost discipline and, and financial
0: restructuring. Right. Why well, did you decide to go to B-School?
1: I wanted a little bit of a a career switch. Um, So I knew that I didn't want to stay in restructuring forever. Um, Wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do, um, but knew that several of the paths that I was interested in, the the MBA, would certainly benefit me. I also wanted to take a little bit of time to decompress after working 95-hour weeks for a few years, and um, decided to go back to just recalibrate and see if I could do a, a little bit of a career switch.
0: Yeah. Is it worth going for most people, do you think?
1: I think it depends. I, I certainly don't think that there's anything that I necessarily learned at at Fuqua that would be a prerequisite for you know for anything after that. Although I think for some career paths it's almost looked upon as a, a necessary uh, check the box. Um, so I think it's on a case by case basis. I certainly got a lot out of it. I had a lot of time to figure out what I wanted to do next. I mean, that was where I actually got into uh, to crypto uh, down there when I had some time to just explore things out of an academic curiosity right. perspective. Also met some great people, but I think it's what you put into it. I mean, there, it's really, uh, the experience can be, you have enough time to make it be whatever you want it to be. What year was that? This was, I was in school from 2012 to 14.
0: So relatively early in the crypto, uh, arc of things. So it's pretty early. So this was around the time
1: that when I started getting into it, it was around the time of uh, Mount Gox, um, you know, big exchange hack, and then the Silk Road, which was, you know, where I started to kind of uh, gain an awareness out of it. And around the same time, I was also reading a lot of blog posts from likes of uh, Fred Wilson and Chris Dixon as they were starting to get into crypto. And so that's where, really where it kind of you know keyed in for me that maybe this is something that I would want to pay a little bit of attention to
0: it, it does tie back to that business school value proposition because you know one of the things that we say um, you know in our in our firm quite often is that that you know people typically uh, under emphasize the importance of market selection right. in a venture that they're really you know it, it, nothing breaks your heart like really smart people working really hard on a, a problem the world doesn't have, you know. Yeah. Like, um, and in a way, the same is true in in your career, right? That that you know, market selection early is a product of serendipity or parental affinity or like a whole bunch of random right. functions. You know, part of the B school experience, I think, is is you get a chance to step back and be deliberate and say okay, this is an area of opportunity and I want to kind of pursue this.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's what I wanted to do when I went to business school is I had that exact mindset that take a little bit of time, try to figure out what you want to do. And of course, as soon as I got down there, a lot of people that I thought were really smart were racing towards management consulting. And so I raced right back in and I did (laughs) did a summer uh, of management consulting. And and it took that experience to really shake me out of it and, and to take a step back and figure out what I actually wanted to do. So I'm glad that I had the two years. Good for you. What'd you do after school? So after school, I joined uh, Fidelity Investments in a, a strategy consulting role, um, looking at emerging technologies.
0: Right, and that was the pivot point to do this full time?
1: That was the pivot point. So one of the first projects that I worked on was for uh, Abby Johnson and the senior team. Uh, it was called Scenario Planning, and it was, it was all about imagining what the world could look like 10 years from now. And uh, in some of those scenarios, what are the biggest threats to Fidelity? And so we were looking at a couple different scenarios. One was an artificial intelligence type of a scenario. um, And then one, serendipitously, was was all about blockchain. And so we uh, initially called it frictionless capital markets. And it was all about what if this technology that underlines Bitcoin, this blockchain technology, could actually effectuate a peer-to-peer settlement for things in the financial services space. And so this was very, very early in the life cycle of cryptos, before Ethereum launched, it was before private blockchains were even a thing. But our initial uh, lens on it was any intermediary business in the financial services space would be threatened if something like this were possible, so we should at least try to get smart about it.
0: Hmm. You know, in those days, was it sort of fear or greed, do you think, Um, or just general curiosity, um, in terms of a place at that scale it's relatively early to, to be looking at at this particular market. What do you what do you think was going on there?
1: I think that it was uh, it was curiosity and it was primarily driven by uh, Abby being really open minded to this technology. And so we were really fortunate that we weren't um, we weren't pressed to immediately find a use case for this, immediately find a product to launch. And the focus was really just on educating ourselves. And so. The way that that manifested itself is we, we started a labs team, we started some experiments, we started mining some Bitcoin uh, to see if we could learn about that. We started bringing in guest speakers in the community, so bringing in a lot of uh, early investors in the space, but also bringing in a lot of entrepreneurs who were building products. Um, this was early, early days. And so there was a, it was a learning agenda, primarily, uh, and that's how, we, that's how we went for several years.
0: You know, uh, turning a boat that big is, is hard. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, one essential ingredient is having a captain who gets it right. Yeah. Or it's some kind of a champion internally that says this is important and it's worthy of resource and attention on the part of the team. What did you learn from the experience of championing a new technology uh, and unfamiliar and in some ways threatening technology in particular inside a large institution like that? Like if someone else were undertaking a role like that in a different place, what advice would you give them about how to be effective?
1: So I think the it's a great question. The optics really matter. And so the senior leadership team at Fidelity was always and is always very open-minded to the technology. I think that a lot of good ideas within companies can really die if middle management is not supportive of them. Right. So you need to give uh, the more junior folks the, the kind of the time and attention, but also just the permission to explore. And so that was always within the culture of Fidelity, and it, and it is within the culture. It's a great company. And so there was always the, you know, the belief that we could spend time uh, you know, evaluating these things. So I think that was critically important
0: you know, I, I, most people encountered you for the first time probably as the Fidelity guy on some panel, right? Uh, (laughs) um, so you were obviously spending a lot of time, um, out there, um, you know, elevating the visibility of, of Fidelity's brand and trying to make them relevant. And obviously there's a personal brand component, uh, to that too. You know, how did you think about, about that? Like time outside in the community, um, was, was your commitment to that you know, was it a, partly a function of the nature of crypto? Or 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 was that something you have an affinity for? Or, were, you know, how did you decide that you were going to spend that much time kind of out, out in the world?
1: So I actually, I don't think it was a conscious decision. I generally am a kind of a shy person. I haven't been doing a ton of panels or podcasts. But as we started to ramp up our efforts and as we started to do a little bit more uh, on the investing side at Fidelity, it became more of an option. And so I think at that point it became known that we were a lot more active in the space uh, than maybe previously had been thought. And so um, for me, I was always kind of nervous about those panels because you could always say something that, that could be antithetical to one movement in the community. I remember there was one panel that I did with Neha at the DCI, you might've even been there, where I said something positive about a particular uh, crypto asset network, and she kind of jumped right on me. So I was always a little bit worried about those type of uh, scenarios. But, um, you know, it was always more about the the messaging, the the overall brand for Fidelity and and the innovative culture and promoting Fidelity Labs, and that's really where we tried to focus.
0: How do they think about... Or at least at, at the point that you left the company, like how do they think about crypto in the present and in the future? Is it a fundamental strategic asset? Is it a hedge against the possible future outcome, or is it you know, how central is it to their strategy? Do you think?
1: I think that we're still in the very, very early stages of this technology, and it's probably too early to have crypto baked fully into a diversified financial services firm top-level strategy, but it's pretty clear that there's some compelling use cases that at least warrant some attention. So we spent a lot of time just understanding some of the operational efficiencies that might be coming into play as a result of crypto, and that's there's certainly some merit there. I think we're years away from some of those actually being um, central to a strategy, uh, the other thing that we spent a lot of time on is just looking at some of the market infrastructure that would need to exist, regardless of which ones of these networks come to pass. And so, when I say market infrastructure, you're looking at things like custody, things like exchanges, things like data. There's just a level of plumbing I think that needs to come into existence here, and uh, that's a big opportunity. I think you see a lot of, um, you know, a lot of firms are very dismissive of crypto, but the more uh, forward-thinking firms are starting to look at those key infrastructure buckets and say, you know, that will enable uh, ETFs to exist. You know, if we are to get a qualified custodian and we are to get a regulated spot market, uh, new products will become possible. And so I think that's one lens that we've always had is just looking at some of those building blocks and trying to figure out how they come into place and then how we play a role in, in forcing them into place.
0: Your, um, kind of a bridge figure um, in the sense of, like, you know, that crossing the chasm chart. You got, like, a bunch of fanatics and, you know, long-haired weirdos that are in the early days, like, you know, libertarian fringe figures and, uh, you know, folks of questionable uh, <laughs> um, and, and we sort of get through that phase and then the technology kind of grows up. It's very much analogous to the sort of way early internet went. Yep. Um, and now we're seeing kind of the the curve of mass acceptance and it feels like we're moving into a more of an institutional participation in the uh, in the platforms. And um, so, you know, it strikes me that you you're someone who probably has to kind of explain some of the fundamentals um, of cryptocurrency to folks who are you know smart people, but just don't have a lot of exposure to it and see it as something they read about in Fortune or whatever, and seems half crazy. Um, you know, for the benefit of folks like that, how do you explain what all this is like how do you explain bitcoin or crypto in general to someone who is who is you know again broadly informed about financial markets or has a sense of things but doesn't really get you know this sort of magic internet money
1: yeah it's a great question it's a really hard question i think you know for a lot of different people you'll have an orientation on one side or the other you'll either see this as money you'll either see this as back office plumbing The analogy that I like to use is around um, internet protocols. And so if you look back on the history of open source uh, protocols, whether that be something like LAN or something like TCPIP or HTTP, what generally happens is that that protocol is worked on in an open source manner, Department of Defense, government grants, academic institutions. And what will happen is that the fruits of that labor are captured by operating companies that build on top of it. And what's fundamentally different about Bitcoin is that it's the first time in human history that you can have a protocol that actually carries value with it. And so if I were to summarize the big breakthrough with Bitcoin is that imagine having a, a, a protocol uh, that is scarce. And so if you think about what that could mean. So if if I were to take a picture of this room and I were to text it to you, you could send that picture to anyone and it would be replicated thousands and thousands of times. And that's how our internet protocol suite had always worked. And the fundamental breakthrough with Bitcoin is that in a peer-to-peer manner, I can send you a Bitcoin and I can provably know that I don't have that Bitcoin anymore and there's only one copy of it and you cannot replicate it. And that's all happening peer-to-peer without a trusted third party. That's a huge breakthrough. And so... I think a lot of people see that and they say, well, where are some other transactions where you would have the need to transfer something peer to peer and you don't want to pay a third party and and maybe have this digital scarcity element to it? So that's really where I start. And obviously the first use case, I think the most compelling initial use case is around uh, non-sovereign money. And so what if we could make a form of money that is not tied to a to a government, uh, to a fiat regime. And that's really the, you know, understanding the history of Bitcoin, that is really central to the cypherpunk movement. That is why the people that built Bitcoin built it. And I think we're seeing a lot of derivative platforms emerge to address other types of use cases that are now possible as a result of that use case. Um, But that non-sovereign money use case, to me, is still one of the most compelling uses of the technology.
0: You know, it's it's no coincidence that, Cryptocurrency is exploding in a time where we're losing faith in our centralized institutions, mm-hmm. whether they be central banks um, or or uh, nationalist governments or, uh, you know, pick your institution. Even on the Internet, you know, which was meant to be a, uh, a you know, a playground of, uh, a, you know, democratic place to share ideas has become really, you know, three companies on the whole mm-hmm. thing, it feels like. Yep. Um, you know, do you see this in the context of... Of broad and particularly kind of millennial distrust of centralized institutions, or do you think the two phenomenon are kind of, uh, you know, um, you know, independent?
1: I think that they're independent, but I think that this is something that the genie is really out of the bottle on this technology. And so, um, one of the areas that I'm most interested in is looking at. You know, so you use the example of federal governments controlling a fiat regime. What about? Um, data monopoly business models. I think to your point around the concentration of market cap in the S&P 500, if you look at those businesses, an awful lot of them are data monopolies, where the the model is essentially, give us all of your personal data and we're going to sell it. And if you think about the power of this technology, what it has the ability to do at some point, I don't think there's a platform that's doing this yet, um, is to give the user a lot more control over their personal information and to partition off uh, that service. And so I think that the, the potential ramifications on some of these data monopoly business models will be extreme as a result of this.
0: All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back to talk about uh, the departure from Fidelity and uh, what you're doing now. Sounds great. How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs. The G20 Ventures, people first. All right. We're back with Matt Walsh. Um, So tell me about the decision to leave Fidelity and what you left to do.
1: Yeah. So we, um, Nick Carter and I um, have uh, recently left Fidelity. We've launched Castle Island Ventures, an early stage venture fund focused exclusively on the blockchain uh, crypto asset market. And so our uh, viewpoint is that there are tremendous opportunities here on both equity investments as well as direct protocol investments um, and not ICOs. But uh, we are focused on investing in companies, early stage, uh, infrastructure companies. And so we'll be a seed focused venture fund, uh, focusing on some of these companies that need to exist in order for any of these protocols to, to really take off.
0: Um, you know, most people don't know what's involved in starting a venture fund. How do you do that? How do you hang out a shingle and say, uh, you know, let's, let's, let's put on a show here.
1: Yeah. Well, <laughs> we're still figuring it out. It's, it's a lot more complicated than it initially looks, uh, start with a lawyer <laughs> and then you start fundraising. Yeah. yeah that's, that's basically how it, how it went.
0: Just going out there and uh, passing the hat. Yeah. And uh, what's the state of the fund now uh, uh, in terms of like, are you guys up and running and making investments?
1: Yeah, we're, we're up and running. Uh, we've made one investment so far, a company called Flipside Crypto. Dave start Balter. Dave Balter, a great guy. Um, and so, yeah, we, uh, one investment into Flipside, which is a a you know, great company, we we think it's firmly within that market infrastructure bucket of you know, things we're looking at. We think that data is going to be a huge part of any of these uh, networks going forward. We think that there's a tremendous amount of opportunity there, and, and we're really excited to support Dave and Jim and Stone.
0: So you, you sort of specifically dismissed kind of ICOs as a medium. Uh, why? Do you feel like we're past the uh, the opportunity point there? So, you know, when I look
1: at the SEO market, just a staggering amount of these ICOs have the hallmarks of unregistered securities. And so that's something that we want to stay away from um, you know, because we think that there are a lot of these that have been issued probably are securities. The secondary point, and probably the more important point, is that do we really think that we're going to live in a world where 1,500 protocols for sending value are really dominant? And that's something that Nick and I spend an awful lot of time thinking about. If you think about the uh the evolution of the internet, there were there were not fifteen hundred internet protocols. There's one HTTP. there's one SMTP. I think it's very likely that there will be a power law of winning protocols here. And to me, it would be unlikely that a protocol would emerge where there would be the owner of the protocol would own forty percent of it and everyone would just be right. happy using it. So right. Um, We look at fair distribution as a really critical characteristic of a lot of these networks. Uh, And furthermore, a lot of the ICOs that we're seeing that are focused on this so-called utility token marketplace where they're built to provision a certain service, whether that be distributed compute or storage or something like that, uh, you really have to ask yourself, are we going to live in a world where people hoard file storage tokens? Or do we think that it's more likely that people will want to provision these services on a just-in-time basis just when they're ready to use the resource. I mean, you don't uh, hoard gasoline in your backyard. You fill up your car when it it needs gas. And so we have the view that these will be working capital type of transactions where you will have a real-time, at scale, you will have a real-time conversion into these particular assets to the extent that they uh, even exist. And so that would lend you to believe that the value of the token itself would not be uh, very high. There would not be a holding preference greater than zero to treat these things like money. And so uh, we're a lot more excited about the protocols that are building that have the characteristics of money. Um, And we're very, very bullish on equity investments in companies that are building some of the infrastructure that financial institutions and all of us will actually need in order to make these things usable. Right now, these things are not very usable.
0: Hmm. You know, you have the challenge of investing um, into this really frothy market, and I would Im- imagine that creates a tailwind on the capital-raising side, but about a headwind in t- terms of valuation on the on the um, investing side. Um, you just gave an example of a kind of core thesis in terms of where you're looking to make a play and where you feel like the opportunities are over the long run. You know, what else do you see in the market as places that are likely um, uh, to see long term value creation versus places that feel more you know, speculative and short term?
1: So I think that the I'll address the speculative nature first. I think that a lot of these platforms are being a lot of the protocols, the ICOs um, are being introduced with the lens towards Ethereum is not scalable. Let's find something that's more scalable. In order for any of those platforms to really reach their true potential, the token itself will need to be treated like money. Uh, That's a that's a core view of ours. That's an opinion. And so I find it unlikely that we're going to have 15 of these. I think that it'll be a densely concentrated power law where one or two will have 90% of the value. Where I think there's a lack of emphasis and a lot of the kind of crypto-only funds are not looking at are infrastructure investments in companies that do data. And so a good example of that would be network data. There's a well-understood market for for market data, trading data, in the traditional financial services space. And if you think about that, all of those business models will be required for for the crypto assets. And there are a number of companies going after that. Um, What is new about blockchain and where is there some white space? There will be companies that run nodes on these networks and deeply understand the network topography of who's actually participating in the network. And so how many unique addresses interact with these platforms every day? How much actual utility is happening versus just pure speculation on these networks? And are there any patterns that we can discern in terms of who's participating in these networks? And so that's one space that uh, I spent an awful lot of time evaluating. My partner, Nick, started an open source project called Coin Metrics, exclusively focused on jump the conversation in that sector. And so when I think about the opportunity areas, that's one that, that immediately sticks
0: up. Mm. So this this sort of, you know, let's call it the picks and shovels thesis, right? That uh, the, you know, the, the guys who in the Gold Rush who all make money are the guys selling picks and shovels. Um, uh, the, the infrastructure that you see needing to be built, uh, how much of your understanding of that is shaped by your experience inside Fidelity seeing what infrastructures exist to evaluate you know, other forms of uh, other equity instruments or debt instruments or whatever. Is it really, are you looking for parallels in the crypto space or is it something that's, you know, completely greenfield?
1: I'd say it's very much shaped by my experience at Fidelity. So we went down a lot of uh, dead ends looking at certain blockchain applications over the years. Um, It's very clear to me that blockchain is not just going to be a replacement for an existing system. It's not going to be, let's look at equity post-trade settlement and sprinkle a little blockchain on it. Right. Those are clearly not the big opportunities. Um, however, for some of these use cases to actually exist and thrive, you will need institutional capital to be able to participate in them. And so you will need things like a qualified custodian to actually hold these assets. A pension fund or an endowment is not going to be Happy holding a blockchain-based asset on a hardware wallet. Um, you need regulated spot markets. Uh, you know, a year ago, ninety percent of the Bitcoin volume in the spot market was being done on unlicensed exchanges in China. It's very unlikely that financial products are going to get built on that foundation. Yeah. Um, and, and then the third thing is this data, right? So you need to have accurate pricing data. What is even a simple question like what is the price of Bitcoin? Saying, look at Coinbase or look at coin market cap is not sufficient to build institutional products and services around this ecosystem. And so a lot of it is shaped by our, our knowledge of the kind of the existing r- landscape, um, you know, and, and what is just necessary for any of these platforms to thrive.
0: You know, that, that conference you mentioned, Neha's conference that, uh, that, uh, we both attended. One of the things I thought she called out that was really interesting was this sort of dirty Slater versus clean Slater, um, uh, worldview. And, um, you know, this is the, the idea that, that uh, everyone is familiar by now with the scale limitations of Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, there is, seems like there's one camp of folks who think that those protocols will be replaced by protocols that don't share those scalability problems, uh, the so-called clean slaters, starting from a blank slate. And then there are others who feel like um, that new technologies, second and third layer technologies will be built on those platforms to enhance their scalability uh, side chains, things like lightning. And, um, it sounds like based on your power law, uh, you know, anticipation, you're more of a, of a dirty slater.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I, I get accused of being a Bitcoin maximalist from yeah. time to time. Yeah. I think that there's a, a tremendous network effect. Uh, and I think that security is something that is underappreciated. And so if you look at uh, Bitcoin and the conservative development roadmap behind that project, I'm actually very encouraged by it. I think that these things should move slow at the protocol level, and the innovation should happen at the, the application level. And that's because we're dealing with money. And so if these things break, then people lose money. Right. And, and so that's, that's my
0: Right. The, at least there are problems with these more, f- you know field-hardened protocols, but there are known problems at this point as opposed to something that may solve those problems, but bring entirely new ones to bear. Right? That's
1: exactly right. And I think Ethereum is a you know, super ambitious project, um, but it's telling that we're still discovering vulnerabilities uh, within certain implementations of that that project.
0: If you're right, obviously, then the long-term Bitcoin is, a, is, a, um, is worth holding. Are you, are you long on Bitcoin itself?
1: I'm long on Bitcoin itself, but with the with an open mind towards there being other projects and other uh, potential currencies that could supplant it. I think if you asked me to identify some weaknesses in Bitcoin, I think that um, fungibility is one. And so the ability to to call out one Bitcoin versus the other and to say, I will not accept that Bitcoin because it's been on X, Y, and Z exchange and they don't do uh, X, Y, and Z you know, backgrounds, uh, I think that that is a potential weakness of the project. And so I think projects like Zcash and Monero that are attacking some of the core issues around fungibility are certainly worth paying attention to.
0: Right. If someone is um, is new to this space and looking to get some exposure to it, what, what, what what's your advice to people at cocktail parties as the to- how they should start to get involved.
1: I think reading is the best ROI that you can possibly have is just reading and actively participating in some of these networks. And so there is so much more information out there right now than there was in 2014. Yeah. And so, you know, I think in 2014, I read every single book I could possibly get my hands on explaining Bitcoin. But now you have active subreddits for all of these projects. You have Telegram channels that you can join. There's just podcasts. I mean, there's so many things to get your hand on. And you know, I think immersing yourself and spending the time within these communities really understanding them is is probably the best ROI that you can have on a career in this space at this point it's not about who you know it's about what you know and I've I've never seen a space that has such an idea meritocracy I see these uh, young students that are starting to get into the space and they just throw up a medium blog post and Three weeks later, they've gotten an inbound call from a a venture fund or a hedge fund because they really agree with something that they wrote, and they want to chat with the person.
0: Right. It goes back to your consulting roots. A consultant is someone who knows 20% more than you do, right? (laughs) Right. Um, uh, Having consumed all that information, are there two or three books, articles, podcasts that come to mind as being particularly high-quality sources?
1: So I think Patrick O'Shaughnessy's Hash Power uh, documentary podcast series, uh, which Fidelity sponsored, um, is a terrific place to start. I think it it starts really early within the background of these projects and it goes through the the current day. So that that's certainly one I would start out with. Um, yeah, I think there's several really good books on the topic. Uh, the Bitcoin standard is one. Digital gold is another one that I would recommend. Casey and Vigna have a couple of books on the topic that I think are really worth reading as well.
0: Uh, Casey's book was, um, Age of Cryptocurrency, and then the new one is the, the truth. Uh, the truth machine. The truth believe. machine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, both very good. Um, all right. So, um, what kind of companies are you looking for? Who should, uh, who do you want to call you and pitch you and, and get after you to look for money?
1: Yeah, we we love companies that are not doing an ICO, not doing a token. Um, so companies that are building uh, custody workflow solutions, data companies, exchange technology. We're open for business.
0: All right. Well, wish you luck with it, Matt, and thanks for coming in today. Thanks for having me. Thank you. fun. All right. My conversation with Matt Walsh of Castle Island Ventures. Um, just a really down-to-earth guy. Really has a great sense for, I think, where this market is headed. Uh, seems kind of unblinded by the shiny object syndrome that a lot of people are afflicted by uh, in the space. Uh, certainly look for big things from Castle Island. And um, uh, again, want to thank Matt for spending some time here with us today. All right, thanks for sticking around, and we will see you next time.